I think the remarkable thing about sailing is it doesn't matter whether you are young or old, whether you are able-bodied or disabled-bodied, whether you are short or tall, fat or skinny, gender is completely irrelevant, right? I still learn something new every single time I go out. Welcome to For the Love of Boats. I'm your host, Kelly Moulton, CCO Sensar Marine. Saskia is a serious sailor who loves to race her Swan 38, raised in Queensland, but who has lived all over the world. Now based in Holland, but moving back under with her family next year. She is taking a hiatus professionally. Her last gig being CEO of Damco Freight Forwarding, a Maersk subsidiary. I'm meeting her for the first time on the podcast. She made a glowing remark on Facebook about our product, SmartBoat One, and I just thought I would reach out and have a chat. And boy, did I strike gold. Sit back with a fresh cup of coffee and enjoy this firecracker of a sailor, Saskia. Saskia, welcome uh, to For the Love of Boats. It's so good to have you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I say Saskia because I just have to start right away by saying I'm going to try the last name and see if I get it right. And then Go you on. Right. Grown into wood. So that, yes, that's a very Anglophiled version <laughs> of my name. And I'm, so it gets worse, actually. So I'm now living in the Netherlands with what is an incredibly oldie-worldy Dutch name, which I can't pronounce properly. So I get corrected. <laughs> by everyone here when I attempt to say my own name. Do you know, I'm <laughs> not well. sure I've met someone who can't pronounce their own last name. That's really... <laughs> well, no, no, no. I can pronounce it. I just don't pronounce it the way Properly. they want me to yeah, pronounce that's it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, so. but let's hear your best shot just for for the record. Saskia? Saskia Grunenetraut. To me, that sounded authentic. I mean, I absolutely uh, yeah. <laughs> like well, a real Australian. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, we have never met, so I look forward to getting to know you. Um, can you just, uh, you know, tell us about yourself, uh, a little bit of background before we um, get to uh, sailing and the love of boats? Sure. Uh, so obviously, I'm Australian, and uh, I've spent <laughs> the last. Uh, Oh, quite a lot of years living everywhere else except Australia. So uh, from Switzerland to Philippines, Singapore, Netherlands, and worked probably, I, I don't know, something like 60 countries on various scopes of work. So I actually come from the cement industry, and I'm one of the people, I actually really love cement, and there's not a lot of people that say that, but it's, it's actually a really cool industry. Um, and I went from there to shipping with Musk. Also a really good industry. So um, I've been really lucky to see a lot of parts of the world that are not on any tourist brochure anywhere because you don't build cement plants in exotic locations. And, and it's been good. It's been fun. And uh, I have a couple of kids. So my kids are uh, 15 and 17. And uh, they've moved with me. So they've not really ever actually lived in Australia. Um, but they're, they're good, and my husband has two older children who the four kids are, are terrific together. Mm. And yeah, so we've, we've been able to, to sort of see a lot of parts of the world. And, Fascinating. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's not bad. And I think you're, to go home, you're, you're being wonderfully modest too. From what I picked up on LinkedIn, you've held uh, the chief executive position in your, your last uh, gig, so you've moved up the ladder. 
Yeah, so I've I've always been in operations really as a capacity. I grew up in a very heavy industry mining town, a little place called Gladstone on the east coast of Australia, um, which is, and we'll talk about that a bit later, has turned out some pretty remarkable sailors actually. And uh, my family ran an industrial construction company there, which has been my brother now now runs that. And it's a, it's a really good place just to be able to learn what it is to be a leader. And one of my earliest memories was working for a guy who was the, the plant manager of the world's largest alumina refinery, um, 86 hectares of operating plant. I loved the place. It's, it looks like Mad Max, but it's fantastic. <laughs> and and he, he was really instrumental in saying, you know, I think it was my first or second day, go home at two o'clock. And I thought, well, I've just started. And he said, no, he said, you know, a quarter of our workforce is on night shift and if you want to know what's going on, you need to be with the people. And it's probably one of the best lessons I've ever had in keeping things pretty authentic. And, you know, if you're not connected at, at every level of the business, you know, you tend to get fed a lot of garbage. So it's just that Gladstone was pretty good for, for teaching people to keep it real. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, um, I can imagine. So yeah, there's no room. Wonderful. No room for crap there, which is good. Which is good, yeah. absolutely. So uh, you're a sailor. I am. When did yes. that start? Right. So when I was about four, my dad put me on a boat and pushed it. And I actually think I had no clothes on it at the time, which now is <laughs> literally, incredibly literally exposed. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember my mother um, being terribly upset and dad saying, she'll work it out. And, uh, and I did. <laughs> and I came back. And then when I was uh, six she'll or seven, wear it. She'll I... She'll work it out. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's great. So, so, Dad was one of the world's early feminists, so I think he's the only guy I know that took me to a Rotary Father and Son weekend. So there's like 399 eight-year-old boys and, and me. So cool. And I, yeah, I learned to run fast at that. But um, no, the, the sailing was, I, so again, for, for parts of your life, you, you know, you look back on certain experiences. And I think for many years, I romanticized the fact that Dad really wanted me to learn to sail. And actually, he didn't. It was just a great excuse for him to be at the yacht club on a Sunday morning having beers with his mates. And it took me a while to work that one out. Absolutely. But anyway. My, 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 yeah. my, poor, my poor boy keeps being asked, do you want to go play golf on Saturday? You know, it's like, you know, and I have it under the guise of being a good father, but uh, yeah, guilty as charged. Yeah. Well, I just force my kids to go. They don't even get the question is, you're going sailing. Um, but yeah, so I went into Sabos and uh, I would say I was a bit crap compared to the boys. There's not, I was the only girl. There was another, another girl for a while, um, but really it was just me. And I still have that Sabo actually here. So I think it's one of the oldest ones, wooden, little wooden one uh, from Australia. And then, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't think I really enjoyed it when I was forced to go. And then dad was started being away a lot for work and I started to go on my own. And uh, such was the era, you know, as a, as a girl and I was always very small, so you were always crew. It was just never, a, the fact that, you know, I'd have a tiller was just never, never a thing. So I sort of realized not long after that, if I was going to be on the helm, I'd need to buy my own boat. There you that go. started that journey, yeah. And so, uh, when did you buy your own boat? What what was the first boat? 
So the first boat was a Spencer Serendipity 28. Uh, so he's a Kiwi designer. No. And, uh, and how, old were you? Like, how old were you when you bought this? I was eight months pregnant and 29 <laughs> years old. <laughs> Thank you for that. I have the image she, in well, my mind. Well, okay. She, <laughs> yeah, well, there, there's a reason why I say that. So she was really well known up and down the, the east coast of Australia. She's quick. And um, there were two sister ships built in back in backyards. The Ellen Sierra was one, and the other one was Rush. And I think there's 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 a few others, but both were really raced hard by what I consider, you know, the Barker family, um, Leslie Cleverly, you know, really good sailors who were just out there to have a good time, but to be competitive. Yeah. And Ellen Sierra was christened Cheerio. Everyone just called her Cheerio, and. You know, you could you can run a kite, so she's sort of round forward of the keel, but she's got chines aft of mm. the keel. So she's very stable, very mm. stable. And, you know, 30, 40 knots, you can keep a kite up. <laughs> just happens to, yeah, really. Yeah. And um, so I had sailed on her when I was seven or eight years of age. And then I saw her in the marina, pregnant, a little bit emotional, and she was just <laughs> falling apart. <laughs> So of course I bought her, <laughs> and then started to I pulled Crying, her out of the water and you bought her just in tears. <laughs> I, I did. I, I was like, oh my god. Um, so anyway, I still have her. So she's in Australia in my my brother's uh, workshop, and she's going to need work when I go back. But I'd always had the view that you know when the kids were old enough, she's just such a forgiving boat, and she's you know she's easy to sail. She's bulletproof. Just a great you know starter boat. Yeah, so she's 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 not super pretty to look at, but I um, when I repainted her, I had her all done in white, and then on the stern, I got a friend of mine who was a graphic designer to do this big hibiscus flower, which the guys I raced against told me from a distance looked like a target. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so she's lovely. So I still have her. You and still then, have um, her. Okay, and where do you keep her? Yeah, so she's just on the hard out the back of my brother's workshop. Okay. And there's not a huge market for these boats, right? Nobody really Might as goes, well keep yeah, her. Yeah. No, no. That's not okay. my that's my dream boat. Um but I feel that I feel a debt of obligation to to, you know, make sure that she's in good nick and, and able to be sailed again. So she's she's been mothballed, um, and she'll need work, I think, on the deck, but the rest of it her hull is, is you know, the old diagonal triple planked. Yeah. So she's she's good. Yeah, but, but yeah. to us it's like gardening. It's fun to take care of uh, these old girls and 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 bring them back to life. And and so fast forward to today, I understand uh, you're about to sail to to Norway. Is that correct? Yeah. So I have um, I have a Swan Thirty Eight now, mm. which is hull number one, <laughs> no less. And uh, I've wanted this boat since I was, oh, I can't remember. Everybody that knows me has known all I've ever said is I want a swan. So it's your dream boat. You literally have your dream boat. Okay. Literally. And um, yeah, when we, I had a Jeannot when we lived in Singapore and it was a a skittish, I could never get it a firm up. It's a very twisty, good to sail. We raced and we did well with it, but it was, I just, I don't know, fiberglass boats like that. Anyway. So yeah. sold it when we moved over here, and then um, she came up for sale, and she'd already sold. But I was talking to the guys in Finland who owned her and said, I think I was just such a pest 
that when the original sale fell through, they were like, oh, for God's sake, come and have a look at this boat then. And I did everything you're not supposed to do. So I walked into the shed. She was sitting there. She had no rig or anything on, fell completely in love with her and bought her on the spot. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, so then I sailed her with my kids from yeah, Finland. Let, let's talk about okay. that. So why, why do we have to analyze all of our decisions? It's okay just to go from the gut and the heart. I, I mean, have you ever really it, regretted it? It's like that's... No, she's and, and the funny thing is I keep watching all these people that are doing these huge boat searches and I'm like, saw it, liked it, loved it, bought it. <laughs> Probably in about that amount of time. <laughs> yeah, I just had a podcast with an owner of a 54, 57 Nautour Swan and he's uh, converting it to an electric hybrid engine. Ah, actually, where theoretically okay. he can sail from Finland to New York without burning any fossil fuel. So stay tuned. We're launching wow. that podcast uh, actually after our taping. <laughs> really cool. Okay. But, but, I have to say, I'm, I've am i spent a fortune already. So the the boat, is, when I bought Celeste, she was in Dee Marin's yard and they've just done a brilliant job with her. And, and actually, I, I have them on speed dial whenever I've, I've got an issue. They really are amazing. But um, moving over to that sort of technology, it really would be that, that next step, right? So yeah. the engine that I have in her had 0.9 of an hour on it when I picked her up to sail her home um, in, in last July. So <laughs> it's got a few, few more years left before I'm willing to, yeah. to, to change it. But it, hopefully by then that technology is really matured because it is, it is the way it should be done. Yeah, and the Nordics are, are you know, as if you watched a USA Super Bowl commercial, you'll hear that we like our electric cars here in, in Norway. And I'm already starting to sense that electric boating is going to ha happen quicker than I realized it. And, and, and already starting to think like, what boat will be my first um, electric boat? But I don't want to go go there too hard because I was really enjoying the 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 story about about your dream boat, the the thirty eight hole number one. Uh, and so you've had her for for how long now? Uh, coming up to a year. Okay. And what's your next journey? Yeah. So we will do. It's called the Drehook Seamanship Challenge, okay. and uh, so you sail from Den Helder in the north of the Netherlands up across to the Orkney Islands uh, of the Scotland and then across the North Sea to Norway and then from Norway back. So it's about 1,100 nautical miles in, in uh, two weeks. 1,100 nautical miles in two weeks. And you do it shorthanded, so there's only two or three aboard. So it's, it's really, I think it's, it's the type of sailing I really like and it's, it's um, I think it's just it's an interesting navigational. Uh, That's what I was about to ask well. when you say like it's the type of sailing I really like. Can we, we can we talk about that a bit more? Yeah, so you you know you're able to get into a rhythm and you're able to get into a, a routine. And also, I think the North Sea is is not famous for its good looks, right? <laughs> so um, it, it presents itself with with challenges that you've you've got to be well prepared again. So you've got to have a plan. Um, the boat you know, is well and truly set up and, and capable. The question is, you know, how, how good are we? Are we, you know, going to, to be able to deliver what the boat needs um, in, in this process? So I think it's, I like the fact that it, it brings challenges. It's got a lot of night sailing, which I love. So you're really in that 24-hour routine. And um, it's almost like you just completely disconnect from what's going on in the world. It's 
it's like time stops everywhere else because you're just entirely in this routine of of living and, and keeping the boat moving and keeping yourself fed. <laughs> That's it, yeah. which I love. And safe, I guess. I mean, you talk about the, the North Sea. It's yeah. like you say, it's not known for being the most inviting of uh, conditions. <laughs> so you have to be on your guard. Exactly, exactly. But we're very well prepared. So um, I'm happy with that. Talk yeah. to me about racing because it's funny. I had the founder of Savvy Navi um, on for a, for a a podcast, and he had just confessed. I got tired of racing. It was just everyone yelling at each other, and I'm just yeah. enjoying, I'm just enjoying <laughs> leisurely family cruises. But you clearly love it. Can you can you just talk to me more about about racing? I have no experience with uh, with racing. Yeah, I, I think I, I like a mix of both, and I, I have to say, as much as I love to race, I I I like to take care of my my crew, and I like to take care of my boat because I think you know you're not racing for in Australia we would say you're not racing for sheep stations, right? But I think racing is such a great way to be able to learn your boat because without it, you know, learning, you know. Celeste, for example, is an IOR boat with a 135% overlapping headsail. So even she can tack inside 90 degrees, but as a helms person, tacking in a way where your crew can get that sail across without needing to spend 7,000 calories winching it in because <laughs> it's really hard work if you get it wrong, yeah. that's a skill in itself. And that's not a skill I needed on my last boat because it had a jib and you could roll tack it through like you did when you, know, when you were kids. Yeah. And so... Yeah. Learning how the boat behaves, you know, unless you're racing, you tend not to put yourself in conditions where you are testing and you are needing to, to get the most out of really it. Really think. And yeah? Yeah, you need to think and, and strategize yeah. and, and plan. And, and for me, I found it's just such a great way to learn the boat itself. And we did our first race. Uh, I literally just got back from Finland and then we went out and did this 100-mile race, which we won our um, little division, right, which was fine. And, cool. But I learned so much in that process, even things like, you know, stupid mistake. We'd torn the main. So I had a new one on order. We'd torn the main in 40 knots coming through this and uh, doing a jive, which is a bit of a nightmare. Had it all stitched up, put it back on the boat, but we didn't put the reefing lines in. And, of course, when it was 28 knots and we're offshore, we're like, we need to reef and then we went oh we don't have reefing lines and Wim and I Wim sail with me quite a lot we've just worked out this you know you can luff up drop the main put the reefing lines in and then put the reef in and then luff up and, and pull it back up again so we could do it without losing a lot of speed but again right. you know if you weren't racing you'd probably put the engine on and you know go through it in a different way so you just learn yeah. a different way of problem solving and you learn a different way of pushing yourself in the boat. And I was that, that particular race, I had a, a guy, Bart, who has um, a swan as well. And he's, he's a shipwright, I think, by, by trade. But he, he also showed me how far I could push her, which I'd sort of shied away from doing. And Bart's like, no, 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 no. And he's like, got the main on and we've got 30 degrees of heel angle. And, and she just powered, and I was like, geez, I wouldn't have done that. I probably would have backed off a bit earlier, but she, yeah. she can do it. Yeah. So that was really good. Fascinating. What's the worst scrap you've gotten yourself into? What, what, what's the, or, or what's the front most frightening moment uh, that you worked your way out of? 
Uh, so there's a fantastic boat called Wistari, and I, I grew up with Wistari. So Noel, Noel Patrick was an old salt. He wrote the, the cruising almanac for the Curtis Coast in Queensland. And Wistari was a, there's a bit of a story. I, I love Wistari. So Wistari is 56 years old now and a home-built boat out of surplus war materials and plywood, essentially. <laughs> but she has a unique ability to surf. And I mean, if you think about getting a 56-year-old plywood home-built boat with a home design, so it's not even a design that's ever been made. Noel yeah. just built her by eye. <laughs> and you can get her up to 20 knots. You can carry a kite in 40. She has a two-ounce wide luff spinnaker. But we were off a place called Rundle Island, um, middle of the night, and the, the swell was massive, so five, six metre seas, and you sort of came down, and then you got down to the bottom, and, and everything just went really quiet. And then as you came back up the other side, the wind had hit the kite, and then woof, off you'd you know, go again. Yeah. And we blew the kite, which is probably the third one I think we'd just shredded that night. And I had to go up the mast to get everything back down again. Right. And so, and I didn't. I didn't think about it. It's funny, I'd forgotten about it. And Scott, who owns the boat now, reminded me of it the other day. And, you know, you go up and you can get the job done. But now I look back and think, oh, God, I was a complete idiot. Why would I do that? But it was there to be done. And I'm half the weight of anybody else on the boat, right? So it's just much easier to send me up. So, so things like that. And then I've had, you know, I, I crewed for a boat called Shearwater for years, which was a sister ship to Ellen's Euro. And uh, I was jiving the kite you know, when you enter in the pole. Mm. And I don't know what I did, but I cocked it all up and ended with the pole on both clues, but not connected to the boat at all with me <laughs> hanging on to it. And then um, <laughs> we're in this sort of rolling, following sea and I got swept out off the boat and I'm hanging there. And I remember Tony Orgel, who was my skipper, rolling a cigarette going, what are you doing? I'm like, can you bring me back? And he's like, in a minute. <laughs> And then, uh, so that, that, those were those were good times. But we had on Shearwater, we had probably the worst. Um, in 1998, when the Hobart was, which was terrible. Prior to that, we had the Brisbane and Gladstone race, and it was the 50th anniversary race. So there were 225 boats, I think, from memory, in it, and we got hit by a horrendous storm off Caloundra, and it was terrible. And um, I don't remember what the wind topped out at, but we at 50 knots we stopped getting reading so it was it was quite high we were doing six seven knots under bare poles and what we had done we had the four of us who you know Dave Gav Tony and myself we'd sail together all, all the time and then there was a guy called Owen um, who actually had a share ownership in the boat but he came late and hadn't really done all the weekends with us and mm. he everything was fine but um, what happened was we dumped the traveller with the, the main was all tied up onto the boom. And we just had this wind shift of 180 degrees, just bang. And the main came across the boat and Owen was sitting between the coach roof and the traveller. And the main sheet came and we just, I mean, the boat jibed essentially yeah, yeah. In, in, a, in a breaking sea. And the main came across and the main sheet grabbed him around the neck and it drove his jaw into the lip of, of the coach roof and it drove his eye right next to the, his temple into the lip of the wind. And so it took us, you know, you're just in shock. And then I think there was something like 400 strikes of lightning during this time we were out there. Was, My God. I remember really wanting to go to the bathroom, but it's right next to the mast. <laughs> Sorry. 40-foot <laughs> so, can not really inspiring. 
And just hold um, it in those conditions. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was, and we had hail. I mean, it was just crazy. And Owen, it took it took the three of us. Tony was still on the helmet. It took three of us to get the main sheet off his neck, and oh. we all thought he was dead. And his neck was. It was just awful. And so we all just immediately went to our, so I did first aid, Dave went down and got on the radio, Gav helped Tony get the boat sort of back to, to um, order. And so we were asked to come in um, to cross the Wide Bay Bar and come into, uh, was it the Wide Bay Bar? Come into Marichidor anyway. And um, so we did and it, it took us four or five hours to get in and in the beginning, Owen, so I ended up sitting him up, he's a really big guy, I ended up sitting him up facing forward and putting my knees over his shoulders to, to hold his head. Keep his head. I thought he'd broken his neck. Yeah. And um, this is a really long time ago now. Anyway, it turned out he'd swallowed his, his tongue or something to that effect. So it was good that we did that. So yeah. It was the right thing to do, but we did it for the wrong reason. But anyway, he coming in, what I and the guys that I saw with were just hilarious. So we had to get him to hospital and there was an ambulance waiting and, and all of that sort of stuff. And as we were coming in, Owen was really just completely out of it. So he'd had a very heavy concussion and he was asking what happened. And, yeah. and I always remember Gav saying, yeah, Tony hit you. <laughs> and then I don't think they've ever sailed together ever <laughs> since. Because I'm pretty sure somewhere in the back of Owen's mind, he still thinks Tony hit He just registered but, that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but nuts. he's okay today. Let's bring this story he's, to, yeah. My yeah, God. yeah. He's, I think he, he had a bit of short-term memory loss or something for, for a while. It wasn't a lot of fun. And he was, it was really, I mean, it was a very heavy hit. But he, we uh, we had sailing? a lot of water in the boat. Did, hey? did he say? Is he sailing again? I don't know. He moved away not long okay. after that. Right. So yeah, I don't know. I lost track with him. The others oh I'm gosh. still in touch with. Yeah, but we we crossed the bar coming in with about a foot of water inside the boat, <laughs> bailed it out, dropped Owen off at hospital, and then uh, went back out and went home. <laughs> okay. I don't so, know if I should be yeah. laughing or what I should be doing at this story. That's extraordinary. <laughs> Well, I had really long blonde hair then, and it was quite funny because people thought it was me. I don't know why they just assumed it was me that had my head head stuck, um, and people were worried about my hair. And I'm like, well, thank you very much, but it wasn't me, and I'm just fine. <laughs> so, very, uh, very good. Um, you seem to spend a lot of time on boats. How how I do you do. make how do you make time for this thing that you love so much, and then juggle being a a mother, a wife, and a senior executive? Tell me the secret. Yeah, I don't think there is one. So I think routinely you just get in trouble with someone. <laughs> <laughs> and just accept it so, as a condition. Yeah, um, <laughs> so I go and I push the limits as much as I can until someone goes, Saskia, it's just a bit too much, stop. Um, it's been good with the kids because they don't get a say. So I run a, you know, I run a, um, a, a tight know, they, they would say military academy. Um, tight ship, I, I, that's the word. I would say house, house of experience. Um, so the kids, the kids tend to come with me because they don't have a choice. My husband doesn't sail at all. He, I think he's been on this boat once and that was just when we arrived from, from somewhere. So you do have to find a balance, especially when it's, it's not a shared passion. And I'm lucky, um, you know, Wim, who I sail with, his partner, Sib, she's also a good sailor. She likes to sail, but she struggles a bit with time. But when you can find people who are kindred spirits, I tend to yeah. do that. I ask for lots of permissions in advance, yep. <laughs> so that helps. 
Um, I think advanced permission uh, is a key phrase. You know, if I said I'm doing it tomorrow, that might get me in more hot water than I can handle. But if exactly. I if I say in September I have an idea, then you know maybe I can uh, get away with it. Exactly, but, but you know, for all of for all of us, we're not the the YouTube people, right? Which you know, it's all happy families and everybody sails off into the sunset. I don't have I don't have that, and I think a large percentage of sailors don't have that, right? There's significant other doesn't like it and can't think of anything worse. So in many ways, the trade-off for me is not living the lifestyle full-time, which I would, I would love to do. So no matter what, right, you've got, there's trade-offs and that's, that's the deal. So you and let's just face try and it, find... in a marriage, it's nice to have uh, your own space as well and respect that the other person yeah. needs that space because it's a marathon. Uh, you know, I feel like such a wimp. I'm uh, on Friday taking what for me is an epic journey in my 21 foot day cruiser, just bog standard 150 horsepower day cruiser. And I'm going to go up Norway's second longest fjord called Hardanger Fjord. It's about 80 to 100 nautical miles. Uh, but it, you know, it's, it's a new journey for me and I'm like, and I'm really yeah. excited. And some people are really, are you crazy? You do you know how long that is? And then I hear your stories and I, I kind of want them to hear your stories. I go, look, there's nothing compared to what Saskia is doing. There's just no substitute for, for the time. So take whatever you can and you do it whenever you can. Right. So a yeah. hundred miles is not a small distance. It's fantastic. It's going to be fun. And it's that, 11 degrees. Yeah. It's sunny. It's as it stands now, I don't know how to say in English, there's a great Norwegian word, but wind still, like no wind, becalmed if you like, mm. just, just, uh, so it's going to be glass going up the fjord. And then I actually have a guy coming with me with a drone um, and oh, we're, wow. we're, we're greeting one of my customers who imports all the big ribs into Norway. And he's said that all of those are going to be smart going forward. And he does these super cool twice a year journeys where he invites customers to go on an epic adventure for a weekend, you know, for brig owners nice. only. So they're coming over from Oslo. They're putting in, in this, uh, at the mouth of the fjord, Eidfjord, and 15 plus brigs, and I'm going to be the follow boat, are going to come back down the fjord, you know, stop in this nice town called Rosendal, then go to Beshevik, this uh, another nice town that has a world famous chef for dinner, and I'm just going to capture it all. It's it's just the the trip of a lifetime, but I asked permission for this about a month ago. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. It sounds really good. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm and I feel like a kid. I feel like a kid, and and for me, this is like a modern day adventure. You know, um, listen, uh, I I just want to switch on that topic. Uh, you know, the way we met is you were so kind to post. This uh, okay. this comment on on Facebook when we started marketing in, in Holland and Holland is going so well uh, for us. Uh, you're a fan of us, and I just if if you don't mind, I, I'd like to just talk about that for a second. You know, how did you get clued on to us, and what's been your experience with uh, Smartboat One? Yeah, so. Um so I travel a lot for work, right? So I, well, not right now, but normally <laughs> I'm, I'm I travel a lot for work, yeah. and I. I had, had thought about often, you know, I just would like to know that, that the boat's okay. If, if my there's baby nothing going is on, okay. Yeah, that, that I can get there in time. And it's the, it's the other thing. So, you know, when you go up there and you're getting ready to go out, you don't want to get up there, and, you know, or, or these, sort of, um, these sort of issues. 
And Kiko from Dimaran, so he's a he has just been an absolute lifesaver for me because there's a lot of new things on Celeste that that I I know where I want to I want to be able to understand better. And he's just he will always take a call, but he also comes to me and says, "Hey, um, you know, you were asking me about." This because I was thinking oh, it'd be nice to have like a camera on the boat. I couldn't work out a thing, and he said, "What about this?" And so he was actually the one that put me onto it and okay. and um, sent it down to me. And it's uh, with my phone. It's literally the app that I look at first thing in the morning before I get up, and it's the uh, <laughs> it's the last thing I look at before I go to bed. And it's really good because twice I've had I've had one problem with the boat ever since I got it, and I think it's a user error more, more than anything else which is I've dumped the water tanks inside into the bilge three times now. And the first time it happened, I didn't have the sensor and that was off the Swedish coast and it was sort of the middle of the night and one of my kids put his head up and said, Mom, there's a lot of water on the floor. <laughs> and it's like, ah. Oh. And, you know, it was a pretty quick process to be able to get down and go, radio. So it tastes right. It's, you know, tap the water tank and then I could work out pretty quickly, you know, where it came from. And it was just a jubilee clip that, mm. that was undone that time. Mm. And then the next time, um, we were out sailing and my phone vibrated and I picked it up and I said, you've got water in the bilge. And I have an alarm and, an al and a bilge pump, but I can't hear it outside. And so I went below and I was able to catch it and it was another jubilee clip somewhere else. <laughs> so anyway, I was able to catch it and solve it. And it just it's just that early warning system that something yeah things going on and for me prevention is just way better than the cure and I think it's just a great way to prevent it but the other thing is there is issues with boat theft and there is issues with um, you know the security of your boat so that for me is also good because it gives, gives the geofence alarm and probably the last thing was during this winter I mean the Netherlands had a really unusual winter and Scheveningen and I up where Celeste was at the time and and so I was actually able to see her bilge temperature and her air temperature and then you sort of know. And so, in fact, everybody at the sailing club was then saying, oh, can you share your data so that we know, you know, <laughs> roughly what's going on? So it, for me, I find it incredibly useful and it's just a little bit of peace of mind on, on what's going on. Wonderful. That is so good to hear. Did you get the announcement about our product roadmap and uh, where we're going with the user experience? Yeah, I did. I did. And I think that the the opportunities to take it, you know, to so many different levels are as creative as the users, right? So it's very customer centric in, in that respect. Oh. Thank you. Well, we have amazing customers. That's the best thing about doing what I do is I get to <laughs> I get to talk to all these fascinating eccentrics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm. What what was the one question I should have asked you or uh, that I did or you were expecting and I didn't ask? Probably the one question I get more often than, you know, not is, why do you love this so much? Like, why do you, you know, spend what is it? so much of, yeah, what is it? And I was trying to explain to someone the other day, you know, it, and I've actually Googled, why do we love inanimate objects? <laughs> because even for me, I was like, oh, how do you explain this? But I think, I think the remarkable thing about sailing is it doesn't matter whether you are young or old, whether you are able-bodied or disabled-bodied, whether you are short or tall, fat or skinny, it, none of it matters. Gender is completely irrelevant, right? So it's this one sport where you, you can participate 
as little or as much as you want. And the other thing is you never stop learning. So yeah, I've been sailing now for over, well over 40 plus years and I still learn something new every single time I go out. And I'm really blessed to be able to have a boat like I do. And she's a very good teacher actually. <laughs> but it's, you know, I've moved from, from, from really working with the mechanics of sailing and say weather interpretation and things like that, which I, I still love to look at and learn. But now I'm into learning the mechanics of, of the engine and really starting to understand, you know, I found fuel in my bilge the other day, which I've never done, and Celeste is normally bone dry. But actually, then I, you know, just checked all the lines and like, well, the engine runs, so there'd be air if, the, you know, so you go through this whole, whole process. And then I found it, and it's, you know, the, the sealant on the inspection port to the top of the fuel tank um, on one side and then I was like, oh yeah, last time we were out it was sort of blowing three bags full and we were on quite a heel. So it's obviously seeped out, run down the back. Mm. And I could actually do that and there's mm. immense satisfaction, you know, in, in being able to do that. And so yeah. I think as, as far as a, I think, you know, whether you, it, whether it's a sport or it's a recreation, it's a great thing to do. And then probably the last part of it is it really does teach leadership and it really does teach how to work as a team. And I know there's a lot of team building things, but I think there is a, you know, there's something quite special when you can communicate effectively, you know, all of the things companies should be doing, you do sailing, <laughs> yeah. right? You do yeah. your passage plan, you plan your plan Bs, your alternatives, you know, you're looking at the weather constantly, you're adapting to and what's going on. And you're synchronized, you're not going solo. Right, and so you know you're working with all these different data points to to keep things safe and and to get where you want to go. And there's just nothing like that beer at the end with the people that you went through it with. Right? <laughs> now we're getting that, to the that, truth. <laughs> yeah, that, that part's amazing, right? So I think it's it's just it's a shame to see now that it. Um, I, I would really love sailing to get back to its its roots, where it was a sport where you know. It, it didn't matter that you didn't have the latest composite fiber, flash, you know, whatever. Yeah. Anybody can go. And, you know, it, it, when things become so high tech, it, it, there, there's, there's room for that, right? But there's, there's also got to be that room where it still becomes every person's sport because it's such a gift and it's something that you can do your entire life, like forever. Yeah. And, you know, I love that. I mean, John Socrates and, and the, I can't remember the guy from Australia who was from near where I lived, but he's just, you know, done his, the oldest person in the world thing. And I just look at that every day where I'm like, oh God, I'm not sure I'm strong enough. I'm like, well, yeah, of course you are. He's got to find another way to do it. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a great teacher. Wonderful. I also like to comment you made earlier about time stopping. You just are out there. Uh, on your boat. I mean, I was just at a coffee shop sitting in the sun before this podcast where I literally mentally had to stop myself from compulsively checking yes. my phone and just enjoy the sunshine. It's like I've become such a creature and of modern input that to find that moment where time stops is just, well, you get it. As soon as the boat leaves the dock, leaves the shore, you shift. Yes. And it, you just, it, it is this beautiful... Um, 
synchronicity just with the elements that are around you. I'm, I'm reading, sorry, I'm just going to waffle a lot of bit. Wax I'm poetic, go for it. <laughs> uh, this book is, my dad, unfortunately, when he died, mum uh, didn't realise that dad and I had had this agreement about this book, but dad got given it by his father. And mum has since found another copy and, and bought it for me. And it's called Princess New York. And the, the guy that writes the story, so he rescues in 1939 a 60-year-old 26-foot friendship sloop. I mean, these were, these were fabulous boats. And, and, you know, she's pretty much falling apart. But the way that he writes on her restoration and the personality that he gives her and the way he brings her to life is just, it's just incredible. Like, you know, you, you did be, become completely immersed in the way that he tells this story. And I've read it many times, but, you know, I've just picked it up again today and I thought, oh, God, I really love this book. And that's the, you know, the, the beauty of actually being 100% present mm. where you yeah. are and what you're doing. Mm. One last question, and then I'll, I'll let, you, let you go. I have been picking up that, sadly, maybe the adoption of sailing is on the wane. That it, it, I, I feel like um, I feel like the sailing press, and at least in Norway, is is trying to rally us around around the love of sailing. Are you feeling that as well? Yeah, I think, and I think I've read quite a lot actually on um, on people saying, you know, we really have an issue that the kids are not coming through. So the kids that are sailing are sailors' kids. So. You know, they, they A, have a head start. My kids have been on boats since they were born yeah. um, with varying degrees of enthusiasm Did you, did you, did way, you push but, them you know, out naked at four years old? Or? No. Uh, uh, Flynn, <laughs> when he was born, his car seat fit exactly in the stern tuck of my other boat under the tiller. I mean, it, you would, if, I would swear somebody had almost designed it for that. And I could just put it in. It was fantastic. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's a... No, it's... I think making it available in a way where um, kids of all walks of life can participate, yeah. but not just initially in the learn to sail course in an opti, but that they can progress, yeah. that they can yeah. find that you know love for life. And probably the second thing is, I think over time, and I think in the last ten years, people have become really soft. So the the inherent seriously, people yeah. don't want to do anything that's difficult, and the inherent fears tend to you know the minute the boat heals, I've taken people out and you can see them, and it's like just you know just relax into it. So that yeah. the fear of any sort of even remote discomfort is is another part of it, right? People, the in, I don't know if it's the Instagramming whatever, but. The ability to, to muck in and, yep, you're tired and you're cold and you're wet and that's just part of the experience and it's a good part of the experience yep. and it's good for you, right? It's good to know your limits and to see how far you can push yourself and get out of yourself. And that there is some risk involved. That's that's okay. There that's is. the way we learn. I mean, when I was thinking like when I was a kid, you know, my mother had no idea where I was. She would just go, go ride your bike. I, I grew up in Florida. Absolutely. I don't want to see you till the sun goes down. Go away. And I would just go out all day and come back. But right now, yeah. as a parent, if I didn't know where my kid was within a five minute, you know, I, I pant, have you taken your phone? And so there's the, I, I hear what you say. There's almost this yeah. new built in fear of risk and disconnection. Um, really good point. 
Yeah, and I think if I, if I can end with, I'm not sure if you want to keep this in the, in the podcast. But <laughs> this is why we really have Aspen. We can just riff and then he... <laughs> yeah, exactly. When, when I was six or seven, maybe eight, somewhere, it was, I was very young. So, and I was in my little sabo on my own and I went out. And back then we would have had, and this is in a small regional town, right? Um, we would have had 30 boats go out. Most of them were two up, but nobody wanted to sail with a girl, so I was on my own. And, um, Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. No, it's true. And, uh, and what happened was I capsized and got washed away from the fleet. And it was not a great day. It was a bit rough. And I know where I ended up because Barney Point Wharf was, you know, abreast of where I was. And the, the you know, rescue boats that were out had their hands full because everybody was sort of in trouble. But I just seemed to end up in a little bit extra trouble. And I remember drifting out and this became a really pivotal moment actually in the whole character that I have today and I only realised that because we do a lot of executive coaching through work. But um, I remember being absolutely terrified and screaming and then I remember thinking, nobody's coming, you just need to sort this shit out yourself. And I did and I got the boat up and I was cold and I remember bailing out and then I remember thinking, right, right, what have we got to do next? And, you know, okay, we go, we go. And so I got myself back. I was the last boat in, but I'd sort of rejoined the tail end of the pack and was drifting in. <laughs> I remember my dad going, what took you so long? And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I just like, survived. <laughs> yeah. And, and that, that was a really, I didn't realize until recently how pivotal that moment was actually in, in self-reliance, but also resilience. And that's a gift. That is such a gift, you know, to be able to, to solve these problems yourself and to be able to, you know, it, you know, in the grand scheme of things, probably wasn't a, a big situation, but when you're smaller, it feels enormous. And, and that, that I, I really have to be thankful for that I had that experience. So, and I think people just need to be willing to put themselves in those situations you know, whether it's sailing or something else, just to see what, what they're made of and, and you, you, you learn so much about yourself. So that's what I think it's, it's really it's a good thing. Well, well said. Saskia with the nearly unpronounceable last name. Thank you so much uh, for being such a lively, fascinating uh, guest. You've just infected me with your love of uh, sailing and, and life. Um, and uh, Thank you. I look forward to staying in touch and uh, safe journey. All right. Catch you later. Thanks, Kelly. Take Bye. care. Bye.